I want you to picture yourself in a long hallway. On the walls, as far as you can see, there are pictures, framed photographs of organizations entrenched in a public crisis. I'm curious, what companies come to mind? Hello everyone and welcome to episode 46 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman. This week I'm joined by Larry Walsh, Vice Chairman of the Hawthorne Group, a public affairs firm that has been helping organizations for over 30 years. More and more issues are playing out in the public arena and they're dragging corporations into them. This week, Larry gives us some great insights, including what can be known will be known, when you should respond to negative comments on social media, and that values are the foundation of a company's reputation. My conversation with Larry Walsh starts after we hear this from Ashley. Welcome to the Resilience Think Tank. I'm Ashley Guzman, and along with my co-founders, we created the Resilience Think Tank in 2021, dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. As founders, we're based in Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and have a combined experience of over 87 years of helping organizations to become resilient. We are committed to ensuring diverse voices are included in making communities and organizations more resilient. I hope you'll join us. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Before we start, uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself to the listeners, please. Hi, I'm uh, Larry Walsh. I'm uh, vice chairman of Hawthorne Group, which is a public affairs firm that's been in business uh, 30-some years. Our roots are in election politics. Um, haven't done campaigns like that in many years, but these days we generally work in coalition building, grassroots campaigns, or on public policy issues, particularly at the state and local levels. So issues that are heavily regulated at the state level, energy, healthcare, banking, insurance. And we've been, in the last five years, we've probably had significant projects in more than 40 states. Uh, my own areas in crisis preparedness and response, um, really worked in crisis communications my whole career, Hill and Knowlton. And, but at my time um, in the risk consulting unit at Marsh McLennan, really highlighted the need for an enterprise-wide approach to crisis preparedness and, and response. Um, one that includes not just communications, but business continuity, supply chain, emergency response, security, cyber, all of those things, and management decision-making. So that's, that's who, who I am and what we're doing today. And it's interesting stuff. And I was looking at your website earlier and you talk a lot about public sentiment and, and how important it is to be on the right side of that. And I think that's going to be a, an underlying theme as we go through here. So um, I want you to picture something with me for a minute, a, a long hallway full of photographs on both sides of the hallway of corporate crises if we were in such a hallway, we'd see things like Peloton with the treadmill crisis, Fox News with advertiser boycotts, uh, Chick-fil-A for their anti-LGTBQ sentiments, Facebook. Facebook might take up a, a rather long section of, of the hallway uh, with a bunch of things. And actually, there'd be a number of companies that would show up more than once uh, in our in our photo uh, gallery hallway. 
But the fact that we know about all of these incidents is proof that more and more issues are playing out in the public arena. Uh, and they can drag a corporation's reputation right down, you know, as they play out. So talk about what you're seeing in this area and tell me what you think maybe the driving causes of that. Is it social media? Is it the 24-hour news cycle? Why do you think we're seeing so much of this now? Well, I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's a combination of all of those things. I think if we go back some years before we really had social media and the internet, it was the digitization of communications, if you will, email, uh, where on, on the first, in the first place, all communications then became permanent and two, retrievable. Uh, so things that used to sit in files and never got seen uh, were far more available. Certainly it's a gift to the plaintiff's bar as we've seen in, in countless uh, lawsuits. Um, we've always approached crisis management as under the principle of what can be known will be known. Mm. And years ago, that was only partially true, but you ought to at least be prepared for it. Today, it's kind of literally true, particularly with social media. As we've seen in, in you know, with this digital revolution, as all the intermediaries get broken down. And that's the reason there's an Amazon with a separate set of warehouses that can retail online. The intermediaries are gone in almost every industry and it certainly happened in media. So everyone in the world now can talk to and, and share their opinions with everyone else in the world. Literally can happen. Right. Um, don't need editors, don't need fact checkers um, to get your so-called news or information. And so they, they can, you know, a shareholder of a corporation can talk to other shareholders, can literally talk to financial analysts, all without the company being in the middle of the conversation. So a uh, lot more information out there. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's available. Plus, I think we have in this, in this country sort of a gotcha mentality. We like to see the mighty fall. I don't know if that's called schadenfreude or what it is, but um, I think those, those things combine um, and and to to sort of to prick at the at the so-called leaders in society or the leading institutions, particularly when there's a conflict between stated values and performance uh, or activities. You you said a lot there that uh, I could jump on, and there's a, a number of things when it comes to that gotcha mentality, and, and I think from a journalistic standpoint. A lot of journalists are looking for that next Woodward and Bernstein sure. Watergate moment uh, that, you know, that career making story that that they can have. And then the other thing that you said, and I'll, I'll let you comment on all of the above here, is there's a lot of information. There's also a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And you mentioned the fact that, you know, they don't have to worry about fact checking now. Or you can just pretty much say whatever's on your mind. Right. Well, and that's that's something that companies you, you can plan for, you can prepare for. Um, can you stop it? No, but you can certainly deal with it in, in a lot of effective ways, uh, telling your story, being out front, and particularly around those issues that offer themselves up as a potential problem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's really in that risk analysis phase where you say, we've got a problem in division Y or with a certain company or a certain person that, you know, we prefer to 
that it didn't become public, but if it does, what would we say? What should we do? Um, you know, are, 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 do we have a plan of action against all of those things and a plan of action for even, even things that might be unknown? And that comes into crisis preparedness. Would, sometimes you might be taking a, a, a wait and see or more of a reactive posture when it comes to communication as you see something start to unfold. But then as soon as that misinformation gets out there, would that be a trigger to get more proactive and try to get out in front of it then? It may be. Uh, you can create a Remember, if, if two or three tweets uh, within certain networks that don't affect you know, the core of your business or your relationship with your employees or your customers may just be out there and you may just want to let it go mm-hmm. and not engage. But I think it's a, it's a judgment call, but I, I don't think I would necessarily react in all cases. And in, in many cases, not at all. And, and in some cases, just um, you know, address rumors and speculation that are crucial to your business or your relationship with customers mm-hmm. um, and, and be very aggressive. So I think you do need to participate in the social media, but you don't need to participate with everything. Now, if we go back down our hallway of uh, photographs of uh, multiple crises here, some of those examples don't really have anything to do with business performance. A lot of times those photographs are on those walls because of self-inflicted bad behavior, maybe by an executive, a bad tweet, poor judgment somewhere along the line. But that doesn't make those types of crises any less of a crisis, does it? I mean, it's it's still something you have to deal with. No, and and I'll, I'll take a little bit of issue with the with the with the setup or the or the, the question of what whether it's connected to business performance. I think how a company deals with bad behavior, or the fact that there is bad behavior, and then how it deals with it, or if there is poor judgment and how it deals with it does have a direct impact on performance. If we assume performance is more than just quarterly earnings, right? Okay. Uh, an, an analyst looks at, at a company, looks at the business plan, see whether it agrees with it, looks at performance against the plan, see how they're doing, and then makes the judgments on the individuals running the company. And so I think it's very, it, it becomes a very important component in business performance. Um, and it, it certainly at the, end, at the end of the day, has to do with 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 recruiting and retaining the best talent. For sure, it certainly reflects the organization's culture. Yeah, yeah, and so it's in that sense, it's no less a crisis that needs to be dealt with, just as as any problem uh, should be. Um, I think, and I th- I think in crisis planning generally, there's far too much emphasis on physical crises because uh, they're easier to deal with a fire, an active shooter, a chemical spill, if you're in that business. There's certainly business emergency, but I think what generally makes something like a fire, other than for the individuals directly involved, a crisis um, you know, is, is, is if there's some relationship to business performance. Right. Did someone make a mistake and they didn't tell you about it? Um, are they not properly storing those chemicals? Have they had several citations from OSHA? Uh, are they ignoring their own safety regulations? And that often happens when, when an accident occurs is that the company will put out one story and a observer who might be another, like an emergency responder or another hmm. 
sees something very different and mentions it, or that there's other problems that you've been, you know, putting under the under the corporate rug, so to speak. Um, and I think that's often what makes a difficult problem a crisis um, when there's kind of a, a disconnect between the corporate brand um, and its behavior. And then that goes back to kind of tying the first couple of questions together. It starts to build a fact pattern. And that fact pattern then becomes very easily discoverable as we go through the discovery phase, if there's a lawsuit, for example. Which it, and that's from, from a planning perspective, let's assume that it's going to become public. What can be known will be known. Whether it, it, yeah. it actually does, but I think that we've been involved in, in many instances where we've done, we've done an, a load of planning and the crisis, I mean, the, that, that information was never disclosed and so we ne never needed to have a, a response, but we, you know, we had the benefit of thinking it through and discussing how it relates to, to a values, what we did about the problem when we found out about it uh, and how we're dealing with it um, over time. Now, I have clients who look at it a little bit differently. Maybe they're kind of a smaller company and they sort of feel like their best approach is to try to just stay under the radar. Maybe they think they're small enough or maybe they just think if they stay quiet enough, the crisis will avoid them. So talk about why that's not a good approach and, and why you don't recommend that. Well, it goes back to whether, you know, what I was saying is whether it's a big crisis, a small crisis, a small company, a big company. Um, if it if it showed up in the New York Times, how would you feel about that? Mm -hmm. um, just because you're small doesn't mean you're going to avoid scrutiny. Um, and as we've talked about, it doesn't have to be scrutiny from the Wall Street Journal uh, or the New York Times. It could be from a blogger. It could be from a social media um, contact, uh, something on Twitter, something on Facebook that takes a document or said, I'm, I'm aware of this behavior because I have knowledge of it. And suddenly that becomes public and becomes or gets in the hands of a reporter. You know, I think the people who think that that, you know, we'll just uh, kind of hide our problem and no one will notice us. Uh, you know, they're the kind of people that make investments uh, in, uh, in in financial markets and think that they can time the, uh, you know, the ups and the downs of the markets. Um, it may work out, um, but it certainly raises your risk pref profile. And I think that's really the issue. How much risk are you willing to take on? Um, so it doesn't really matter the size of your business. Um, and I think that, that, you know, in the long run, you're not really at that point dealing with a business problem, you're creating a new one. Um, and it's the risk of disclosure. It's a risk of, um, having to answer for a problem that, that you may or may not have dealt with, that may or may not have implications for your customers, for your supply chain, for your, for your employees, for the community around you. And you didn't disclose it because you didn't want, you know, a bad story coming out about your company. Um, but, you know, as most companies say, and, and some we believe, some we don't, you know, our most important asset is, uh, uh, you know, are our customers or our most important component 
uh, our employees. Those are the kinds of statements that people make. And then, and then we see the disconnect when they actually try and cover something up that affects employees or, or customers. Um, you know, that, that, that's the old saying that the, the crisis is in the cover-up. Um, yeah. Or in the inaction uh, of a company to face a problem or to, to make it public. Um, you know, need I, need I mention the name Boeing to you? Sure, of course. That's, that's exactly right. And there will yeah, be another yeah. s- set of pictures in our hallway of crisis. Let's talk about managing a crisis. And I think of crisis communications. I like to remind customers for them to focus on core messaging, go back to their values, uh, focus on their corporate principles and things like that. But I think Hawthorne Group takes us a, a step further. I, I think you take values and apply it not necessarily just to the communications piece of it, but your overall crisis response. Everything having to do with a crisis is built around the company's core values. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, values are really, you know, the foundation of a corporate reputation. Uh, And that's what creates trust. Uh, Employees, trust with the customers, trust with the marketplace, trust with government. Um, you know, I'm not, it's, 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 uh, we'll mention the company, but a, a major healthcare company that's well known for a positive reputation. They felt like that positive reputation helped them when introducing a new drug and they're in front of the FDA, um, going through their, you know, the various stages of drug approval, um, that, that their research was taken a little differently than others because they, the, the reputation that they had was based on values that permeated the organization in the way they act, the way they react, and the way they promote. Uh, it, it made a, a significant um, um, a value uh, that was that was that was usable and, and important to their to their the, directly to their business. Um, and the values really should, you know, there's no you, you can you can build a management culture and. and send people out to, to run divisions and, and be in offices around the world, uh, many of whom may come from different cultures. You're hiring from, from local markets. Uh, they may have very different standards uh, in those markets uh, that you don't have as a company. How do you create you know, a strong sense of value? So when, when problems come up, that a manager has the ability to look at the values and say, well, I, I can't reach my boss just now, or it's three o'clock in the morning in New York. I can't get back to New York. What's the basis on which you want that person to make a decision? It ought to be on the values. Um, we, we had a, a, a client years ago, um, a mill uh, on a river, and uh, they had a release of a gas that's used in the processing, and the gas was toxic or could be toxic. And there happened to be, as, as you can imagine, uh, within, you know, 500 feet, an elementary school. So some of, you know, some of the kids <clears throat> were coughing or uh, at least the smell was bad. And so they were concerned and they were taken to a local hospital. And of course, reporters got to the, to the manager and the manager said, didn't check with corporate. The manager said, listen, this was our mistake. If anybody's harmed, we're responsible. We'll pay all medical bills, period. And the nature of that, it wasn't, 
It didn't affect any of the children long-term. It was just a momentary thing. Uh, didn't check with corporate, but it was the right thing to say. Generally. Right, right. Um, based on our values, that's how we expect a manager to react. If you say you care about the community, demonstrate it. And that's the disconnect is that, that sort of gotcha um, that creates a crisis out of a business problem. That's the perfect story for what we're talking about here, because you're right. I mean, it kind of goes counter to what a lot of us might think was the right mm -hmm. response, but it's, it was perfect. Let me take what you said there, you're talking about the pharmaceutical company, and then you talk about the chemical company or the mill. And I, I have clients who like to tell me that when it comes to, uh, example, uh, uh, a, a data breach or a potential data breach, that they use the phrase over-report. We will over-report to the regulators or to the data protection officers. And I always ask them, well, why is that? And they say, well, we want to build a good relationship with the regulators. We want them to know that they can trust us, that we're going to be proactive in communicating with them. And that's part of building that reputation of having a good set of values in how they're going to respond to something. But what that does is it it makes it necessary for them to be consistent with those values. If they then turn around and decide to cover up something later down the road after building that reputation, that's a harder fall, right? Isn't that more of a tumble? Sure, absolutely. And that's, that's why the, the values really um, should drive everything. Mm. And, and a, corporate, you know, a corporate or a crisis communications plan as a, as a plan, as a document, as a process is useless without a set of corporate values. Yeah. Uh, then you're just writing press releases for things that, that were screwed up. And that's crazy. Then you're just trying to dig out. Um, you don't have the basis for any trust and that's what undercuts trust. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've been very careful not to mention individual crisis, maybe there's one that's old enough that none of us were involved with, uh, like the Ford Pinto crisis. Mm. Um, you know, what was, there was a design flaw in the company, but rather than saying, gee, we better fix this, um, as I remember, they conducted cost benefit analysis and said, you know, it's so expensive to make a major design change on a, on, a, on a car and, and manufacture and, and recall the old ones and replace the parts, it would be less expensive just to leave the product on the market and pay whatever lawsuits come up. Uh, and, and that's kind of, I may be mischaracterizing a bit, but that's the general impression you had from the, the Ford Pinto crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so when they talk about the quality of their cars and they care about um, that was a major, you know, a major uh, ding in, the, in, the, in their fender. Um, and I think that's any company should take that to heart. Um, it's that it's the stated values or the values implied in a trust relationship that you have with customers. Uh, when, when that's undercut, um, I think that's, you know, it suffers enormous damage uh, in every, you know, People have talked about it. S and P asks about it uh, when mm -hmm. when they when they look at companies. Uh, certainly, Berkshire Hathaway uh, has been very clear about that sort of thing. 
Um, so it's, uh, it, it's uh, values are really the starting place. Let me shift gears here for a second and, and talk about business leaders who have been through a corporate crisis and how they respond differently the first time they go through one compared to the second time that they go through one and the lessons that they learned the first time around. How are those responses different? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a perennial golfer. Um, it's a little bit like somebody who hasn't played or hasn't played in a while. Um, you know, that, that's, you need muscle memory. Um, so while it's, it, it's critical and, and people do uh, are better managers when they've been through a crisis, they understand where things went wrong, particularly if they did post crisis uh, analysis, which is, is, is extremely important. Not to just go through something, but also analyze how we performed as an organization so you can make the appropriate changes and training and such. Um, but that muscle memory, I think, is important. And that is something that's developed on a, on a continuous basis. It's not a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I've never really liked the characterization uh, of, of Mayor Giuliani um, during his role at 9-11. I mean, not his fault. I, I'm not suggesting he didn't do a great job by all appearances. He did. But they've kind of characterized it as a singular performance. Uh, he was a good spokesperson, but he wasn't, you know, Batman coming to rescue Gotham City. Um, <laughs> we tend to overlook the role of coordinated response and all the work that goes into that. Uh, not just firefighters, police, medical personnel, port authority, federal, you know, air traffic control, FEMA, um, both in the city and regionally. They did a good job in response to 9-11, got an unknown, I mean, an unplanned crisis for sure, um, because they practice such events. Um, You know, if you've been in a major uh, institution, like a university that has a a big footprint within a community, you know, that those, they may practice that quarterly, they may do it twice a year, but they practice regularly as a multi-agency response. And, and you could do that. I mean, and, and the smart companies do it even within their own company. Uh, put up a, a, um, you know, a sample crisis and work against that. And, and how did we do? And, and um, uh, what, should, what, what could we have done differently? Um, I think that that is absolutely critical to how you're ultimately going to perform. Um, you know, the, a crisis situation if it, if it really involves many components of the organization and it's, it's a public event, uh, is not like normal uh, operations. And that uh, crisis response programs really need to outline a separate and specific concept of operations during a crisis. Right. We don't have time for the layers of management approval that's normal in any typical corporate program or organizational program. We just don't have time. We need to have the decision makers in the right place at the right time. They can make a decision, sign off on something, and then go back to their day jobs. The last thing you want is to have the CEO of an organization working full-time on the crisis because you're likely to create another crisis because you've missed something in the, in the interim, another part of your business. Right. So um, the concept of operations takes practice. 
And, and that's, I think, critical to, to effective response. Right, for sure. Hey, I'll now, get you out of here on this. The Hawthorne Group is fascinating. And if people want to connect either with you or with the Hawthorne Group or learn more, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Well, we do, we, we do have a, a website. And I'll, I'll remind you that it's Hawthorne the Bush, not Hawthorne the Poet. So there's no E on the end of Hawthorne. Um, uh, just if, but uh, Hawthorne.com, HawthorneGroup.com, uh, and, and I'm L. Walsh at HawthorneGroup.com. That's the best way to reach us. All right. Fantastic. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for some great insights and uh, glad we connected on this. Appreciate it, Mark. Good to talk to you. I want to thank Larry Walsh for being my guest today on the Resilient Journey podcast. Be sure to check out the Hawthorne Group to learn more about their services. Huge thanks, as always, to the Resilience Think Tank for being a sponsor of the podcast. And speaking of the Resilience Think Tank, be sure to join me next week when my guest is Resilience Think Tank co-founder James Green. James and I are going to spend some time talking about the Q3 initiatives of the Resilience Think Tank, which is focused on the next generation of resilience. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.